The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer, and uh, we are thrilled to have again in our AI Today podcast guests who have been involved in the AI scene for years, interviewing other people who have also been involved in the AI scene. Again, this is our post-podcast host swap, and we are so thrilled to have as guests here uh, uh, Andy Ilichinsky and David Broyles, who are the hosts of the AI with AI podcast. And if you're listening to our podcast for the first time, maybe you tune into their podcast regularly and you've come now to see what we do here. For those of you who are, or hear what we do here, that is, uh, for those of you that are new to the AI Today podcast, we focus on what's happening with AI well, today, so pretty straightforward <laughs> explanation of our podcast. And we always interview folks who are dealing with some of the challenges and some of the, the difficulties, or maybe seeing some really cool uh, use cases today across the private sector and all the industries from the largest companies we've interviewed. So if you're new, you can hear interviews with Merck and GlaxoSmithKline and, and all these really large companies, all the way down to the smallest companies you probably ne may never heard of doing some really interesting things in industries such as construction and mining and banking and inter in insurance and all those industries. But we also spend time talking to folks in the public sector. So uh, you may hear, hear us have interviewed folks like the chief data officer of the Department of Energy or uh, folks at, at uh, the various state department and various different organizations, as well as state and local and international governments as well. You can hear our interview with Lord Tim Clement Jones of the UK House of Lords, and you can hear what's happening in Oslo and in Australia and many other locations. So uh, just to give you a little bit of a heads up so you can come back and listen to our over 200 and something episodes that we've been doing now for the past four years. So um, as mentioned, without further ado, I really would like to give a warm welcome to our fellow podcast hosts who have been uh, doing a great job on their AI with AI podcast. Welcome to the AI Today podcast, Andy Lachinsky and David Royals. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, looking forward to a chat. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to this. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a little bit about your background, and maybe you know why you started the podcast and what AI with AI podcast is all about. Well, you want me to start, Dave, or you want to jump yeah, in? Yeah, go for it, Andy. Well, I mean, the reason I, I, I perhaps should go first is in some sense, um, I can I can date the uh, at least the conception of the idea for the podcast way before it appeared, but it appeared in my own mind back in January of 2016. Let me explain. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a brief introduction to, to uh, who I am uh, also as part of it. In January 2016, the landmark paper about AlphaGo uh, was published, DeepMind's great result, of course, that everybody writes about to this day. Uh, and I saw that in Nature in the CNA library, and I was reading it, and I remember that proverbial little message you know, or the little voice in the back of, of my head and the hair stood up because I knew then and there that this is something very important. I wasn't alone. Um, and that kind of segue to my own background, I, I joined CNA in 1988. Uh, I got a PhD in physics specializing in complex systems before it was known as complex systems, uh, working with AI or stuff for a while, even as part of CNA. Um, I used neural nets for 
emitter classification when I was a field rep at Whidbey, where the growlers used to be the electronic warfare aircraft, of course, or the, or I mean the prowlers. Now they're the growlers. Uh, back at CNA, uh, I put together some agent-based models that use genetic algorithms that are still used as uh, ingredients of some of the AI systems. So it's, AI has been something that I've been thinking about really my entire professional career. So going back to 2016. Um, I read the article and I went to the president of CNA uh, and I said, listen, <laughs> you got to have a CNA initiated on this. And uh, so I had a little bit of time. Um, I wrote up what I thought was a little pamphlet going in, but it kind of mushroomed to a little over 300 pages back in 2017. And on the heels of that, the idea kind of naturally occurred that because of the rapidity with uh, or the, the speed with which everything is evolving and it's only more so now several years down the pike and we'll obviously be getting into that in a, in a short while that's where the podcast kind of originated we, we we've got to do this in a timely fashion um it's all well and good to go back and take weeks and months to ponder something but there's so much information there and particularly at a place like cna and, and they will take over from from me in, in a second and give you uh more of a background on that we're kind of at the cusp from a gestalt point of view we we have a lot of technical expertise, but we also, also obviously have a lot of operational expertise. So we sit at the cusp of those two worlds, and the timeliness only made it seem more important to, to, to get this information out. So that's kind of the biggest stalt, as I say, where the podcast originated. Dave, Dave can fill you in with more detail. Yeah, that's right. So I'm Dave Broyles, and I also work at CNA. And just a quick background on CNA, it's the Department of the Navy's federally funded research and development center. And so we specialize in doing analysis and research for the Department of the Navy, but we do work also for across the Department of Defense and for other agencies. And I became, I guess I joined CNA in about 2004, so about 16, 17 years ago, um, much shorter than Andy. And over the course of the year, I did a lot of typical operations research that a lot of our analysts do. But at one point, I had the curse of manage, managerial status was bestowed upon me, and I became responsible for leading a team of, of researchers. And the topic was very broadly cast as cyber operations, special operations, um, innovation, and, and a bunch of sort of junk drawer type of topics that eventually morphed into AI and autonomy and largely crystallizing about what Andy just described and it was, I remember very clearly during that course of the discussion, Andy finished that, you know, 300 page paper that he was talking about, about the implications of what all this technology meant for the Department of Defense and the things that our military should be concerned about and thinking about uh, that long ago. And I, almost every day after that, Andy would come into my office or I'd run into him and he'd be like, you, you, you never believe what just hit the newswire on what, what the latest is. And I remember saying to him at the time, like, Andy, right, there's so much happening constantly with this. We got to find a way to stay abreast of all the changes that are going on and to be able to take advantage of this, to, to, to stay cognizant of all the, the changes that are happening. Because otherwise, we'll go on to our separate projects and right, this will just become kind of a rusty thing that we go, oh, yeah, I remember we did this thing a while ago. And so, as Andy described, right, we decided to create this podcast. Uh, AI with AI. It was kind of an obvious thing when your uh, coworker uh, has the initials AI, like what are the chances, <laughs> right? So the title sort of made itself. But And we started that in the end of 2017. So it's been almost four years, about the same time that AI Today started. So it, it's um, it's been really fascinating to, to stay 
looking at all these uh, cool research topics that are being published to talk about what they mean, to see the reaction around the globe from different governments as everyone is grappling with how do we how do we write policy for this? How do we think about what we're going to do with this? How we're going to try to regulate it? All those fascinating questions, and it's just kind of gone on from there. That's fantastic. And for, and for those wondering who may be like, who is CNA? It turns out CNA is not an acronym. So <laughs> it actually says that if you go to the sites, like CNA is not an acronym. I mean, a long time ago it was. It was sort of like KFC. And I'm not trying to make an, That's right. an analogy That's right. here. But um, but I think it's really interesting. You know, I've been we've been listening to your podcast. And I, as I mentioned, I really encourage our listeners to tune in because some of the interesting things that um, you've been focusing on at the AI with AI podcast is really taking a look at some of, the, especially the latest news, always looking at the latest news. I love the art because it's always referencing uh, books and movies. Uh, you can see, I see the Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance in there. I think I have that on my shelf over here somewhere. And um, it's really interesting because you look at some of the implications for what people read in the news. And, and that is really one of the things I think that gets people so interested about AI. And I think what makes AI perhaps different than perhaps other IT and technology trends, you know, cybersecurity, you know, come it's it's all day, every day in the news, but it's not the kind of thing that gets your gears turning in terms of science fiction and kind of where things can be. So, you know, on your podcast, you really take a look, you explore a lot of the latest breakthroughs in artificial intelligence and autonomy, autonomous systems, as well as their implications, you know, both to society in general and to military and defense. So what are you seeing as some of the biggest trends as you're looking at this this news? What are you seeing as some of the trends happening um, today and, 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 and coming up? Uh, you want me to jump? Well, if, from a technical standpoint, um, I would probably name four things off the top of my head. Um, in no particular order, uh, multi-sensory input uh, and processing um, as we move away from, or not move away, but kind of ever refine and dive deeper into the narrow AI regime, you know, the particular problems, particular environments, or what kind of information. Uh, we started off with relatively simple agents that can only see one particular type of information a couple of years ago, although not that long ago, but more and more the trend is and we did a story last week. We're going to have another story as a preview for, for the next podcast we're going to do. Um, but by, they're by no means uh, alone or isolated. There's more and more work trying to fuse the various bits of information that potentially intelligent, quote unquote, agents, uh, how are they able to um, uh, transform and understand the environment that they're in? So that's number one. Um, as part of that and overlaps with that, lifelong learning. And DARPA has had a longstanding program in that, and there's, there's a good reason why it's, it itself is kind of open-ended. That remains one of the fundamental challenges of it's hard enough to train an agent in a given environment, um, and there have been successes, there have been some failures, um, but in, in that inexorable march, hopefully at some point to get to artificial general intelligence, somehow you have to grapple with the fact that agents are continually learning. Nothing is ever stagnant, neither their ability to parse and understand information and act on it, but the environment itself, even as they interact with it, um, which again, overlaps with another third element, open-ended environments. Uh, certainly from a military standpoint, uh, not even talking about the profound challenges that remain for test, evaluation, validation, verification, all of that um, in a military environment in a real-world operational setting, 
you can't predict anything and everything's changing. And the enemy is going to do its best to change it in a way that uh, they believe, at least, that you can't anticipate them anticipating. So open-ended environments are really, really important and they're really hard. How, how much of what an agent learns in a training environment is transferable to something that an agent has never seen? Um, so that's, that's a third. And the fourth, the, the fourth trend, I'm seeing more and more of it over the last couple of years. <clears throat> it's not that it didn't exist before, but I think now what I'm thinking about is kind of the multidisciplinary end of things. There's a whole neuroscience community, right, that has studied the human brain and mammalian brains and animal brains and even other types of brains that we never thought of as brains like fungi. Um, and there are lots of lessons to be learned that people are now turning more and more to because they're kind of running out of ideas, uh, if, if we can talk about it later. But there's a large part of the machine learning community that when you look at the innards of what's being done, the core concept is something that may have been formulated 20, 30 years ago. And it's a series of ever finer refinements targeted mostly to specific problems, specific benchmarks. But if you try to pinpoint the major advances, those actually have not been all that frequent. Um, you know, the, the, something like a deep learning architecture kind of in, in the large, uh, that comes around, you know, once a generation or so. Um, and so people are learning to and, and leveraging more and more what we're beginning to learn, not about AI systems and machine learning systems, but about how nature itself has evolved the the information processing systems over millions of years. So th those are four. There are many more, but I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, let, let me add, I, I think maybe I'll, I'll take a little bit of a broader perspective on it, which is one of the things I enjoy watching the most is this uh, crucible happening of the ideas as researchers grapple with how to make we're right. We have this distant goal in mind, artificial general intelligence, all those things we see in science fiction, which have sort of clearly laid out vocabulary for us that we're all familiar with now, space travel, all those things. We kind of we kind of picture this future for humanity and we're trying to get there. And we're we're in the stage where we're really trying to figure out how to get there. And you see the discussions happening with between the researchers as they grapple with how to get there, the the ideas, you know, blending and merging together, building off of each other. We just recently covered, right, there was the publication um, about reward is enough, you know, this this sort of thesis saying that supervised learning with um, uh, reinforce, I'm sorry, reinforcement learning with rewards is enough to to get us there, right? And and then the the researchers sort of response, the community's response to say like, well, maybe maybe we still do need some other things. We're going to continue to see those things, and it's just really neat to watch that sort of thing happen. Yeah, you bring up some really interesting things. Those are some those, those four or five major things we just talked about here as the trends are pretty significant because we're talking about the one of the fundamental end goals, if you want to think of it, of our research for artificial intelligence, which is, of course, the artificial general intelligence of building these systems that are capable of handling the broad scope of everything that intelligent systems can do, we would like the intelligent systems can do mm -hmm. and i think i think if i can if i can ask this sort of follow up you know i know that some people that may maybe have not part of the defense community not part of the ai research community have some well i guess concerns or maybe some uh hesitancy about the idea of artificial generally intelligent systems and the idea of defense people have watched a lot of terminator 
and you know other movies. So I mean, is is from what you've seen is 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 that still is that the thrust of where a lot of the AI research is going? You know, towards AGI, or is it more of these? Um, I would say much more mundane applications of AI that we're seeing today. I don't know if who, who well, wants to take that. Well, Im, Im, implicitly, the uh, the artificial intelligence, machine learning communities, implicitly, sometimes explicitly, are, are certainly marching towards artificial general intelligence. But by far, the bulk of the work is concerned with very specific problems, trying to test very specific algorithms and refinements of algorithms. And other writers, perhaps not necessarily the researchers themselves, they use that work as a component of a of a longer argument or white paper to suggest how this particular effort may in fact help during, you know, or help in the progress and evolution towards uh, AGI. That's not to say that AGI community doesn't exist, it, it does. Um, one thing that this may be apropos to mention here uh, in, in the context of AGI. Um, so this is not necessarily a trend, but it's something I'm going to predict. Um, so uh, very recently, I think in the last month in Scientific American, uh, NAI researcher Melanie Mitchell, she's actually a complex psychologist, at, uh, used to be at Santa Fe, I think she's now in, in Arizona, um, wrote a wonderful book on, on uh, machine learning. But she wrote a really nice piece in Scientific American, we could provide the, the, the reference for it, where she talks about the early part of her own education, which started with Douglas Hofstadter, uh, the very famous author and computer scientist back in the 80s who wrote Go to Lecher Bach. Um, Dave and I uh, have occasion to mention him somewhat frequently, but it pops up mm -hmm. several times a year. And there's a very good reason. And why I mention him in the context of artificial general intelligence, not so much as a necessarily a trend, but as I say, I'm, I'm going to uh, poke my nose out here and, and, and speculate that this is actually going to become a trend because Melanie makes a point that I resonate with deeply, which is what Hofstadter uh, made about 40 years ago or so, the role of analogy and analogies in artificial intelligence. Part of what's um, right now constraining, this is just my own opinion, of the set of machine learning algorithms, which by themselves sometimes are extraordinarily powerful, right? We've seen many, many remarkable results. But part of what makes it difficult to even envision how they can be generalized and march down the path of artificial general intelligence is that the glue that sticks together a much wider tapestry of problems, of problem solving, of a creative way of, of kind of traversing a vast information space is connecting patterns to patterns. And that's the essence of analogy. And that's what Douglas Hofstadter basically spent Gotelescher Bach trying to articulate and what his whole career was based on. He was largely ignored in the 80s and 90s by the conventional mind speak, you know, the early machine learning algorithms uh, and the researchers. And so going back to Melanie Mitchell's article, she talks about her early history with him. She became his graduate student and we started working on, and she started working on analogies. I suspect this is going to be a major thrust of the work that straddles the divide of the machine learning algorithms tackling specific problems and a slightly broader view of how a whole arsenal of machine learning algorithms can can be buttressed and leveraged to move a little bit closer towards artificial general intelligence and analogies would lie at the core of that. So that's, that's a, at least again, in my view, an absolutely important step to take and, and more and more people are taking it. 
It's interesting that you bring that up, you know, because I think that when you talk to to different people in the industry, researchers, people working in the field, you get many different answers about if and when we will ever achieve AGI. And I think because that comes down to approach and, you know, Mm -hmm. how are you going to try and solve this? Because we talk a lot at Cognolytica about, you know, how do you define intelligence? That's hard. We, we can't define intelligence. So then you're trying to define artificial intelligence Then you're trying to build artificial intelligence systems. And then you're trying to build these artificially general intelligence systems. Then that gets quite difficult because you run into a lot of roadblocks. And one, I mean, major roadblock that we're seeing right now is uh, machine reasoning and we're not there yet. So how do we, how do we solve that? How do we actually get to these AGI systems? So Speaking to to that challenge, but then also more broadly, what are you seeing as some of the primary challenges in AI adoption, whether it's military applications or just in general? Let me start with that one. I I think what we are generally seeing are kind of like the challenges that we're still seeing when it comes to anything, quote unquote, cyber. Um, That is, you've got some something that senior leaders in the military particularly know is important, but they don't understand with enough detail to make adequate decisions about how to handle it and what it really means, how they should be building their workforce and and all those sort of complicating factors. I would still argue that we have a long way to go in educating senior leaders on cyber knowledge. So now translate that to AI technology, and it's even more removed from what does this really mean? Um, I know a lot of crazy science fiction stuff. Can we actually have uh, a, a machine that's going to tell me how to do this sort of activity or, or, or whatever it is? And there's a lot of misconceptions about what is actually in the art of the possible, right? A- again, well, we you get senior leaders that, for instance, saw IBM Watson, you know, trounce Ken Jennings in 2011 on Jeopardy. And they, they try to translate that to something, some other activity and say, well, why can't we do this thing? And they don't understand the details well enough to know that, no, that's that's completely different. The tool set you would need isn't there. All, all those challenges. So then um, that's... I, oh, oh go ahead, Andy. Yep. No, no, I was just going to add to that, but just a personal anecdote. I, I once sat in at a fairly high level meeting at uh, the Pentagon. I won't mention who was there. But the discussion among people that really ought to know better, but in a sense, they were selling their wares. Um, They were using the example at that time, this is a couple of years ago, where you may remember Carnegie Mellon University made a name for itself, among other things, by introducing a program called uh, called Pluribus. Um, Probably mispronouncing that. It's a poker playing game. And uh, it was the first to defeat um, one and then a succession of human professionals. But what I heard in that room, which frankly uh, frightened me a little because of the level of discussion um, from senior leadership on the Navy's part, again, unnamed, is the argument was being presented to them that because we have this poker playing program that can defeat these human professionals, and this is almost a direct quote, although granted it's from my memory, the argument being made was it will be a relatively easy thing to translate this methodology to a wargaming situation where blah, 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 blah. Now, an intense conversation ensued, and I'm, I'm delighted to remember that I was a, an integral part of that discussion, but that should alert a lot of people, and that underscores what, what Dave said. When, when I started looking at AI and military affairs back in the 2017 paper, one of the things I discovered there, um, which frightened me, has not changed at all, except it's gotten a tiny bit better, and that is the divide 
And it may be an irreducible one between the tech savvy machine learning researchers and analysts and some military folk to be sure, and senior decision level makers, decision makers who are not tech savvy. They rely on the opinions and the analyses of those under them. You know, it works as it should. But because of the nature of what AI and machine learning is, it is a profoundly technical field where the slightest nuance of a hyperparameter may make the difference between it making a paper because it beat the state-of-the-art benchmark by 0.0% or it falls flat and it, it does nothing at all. To understand the meaning of that and why it's both absurd and profound, that takes technical knowledge. And how do you bridge that divide? So just underscore what they just said. Yeah, I think, you know, just to, to step back a little bit from that, we could talk about all the other sort of typical challenges, whether it's from the the workforce and the the infrastructure and the, you know, the capabilities, the tool set, all those sorts of things. And if you're familiar with the National Security Commission on AI published a report this year, right, their final report is like 750 pages with lots of recommendations for the U.S. government in general about the investments that we as a nation need to be making in AI today to prepare for that future. I think the things that we were just talking about, about that, how are, how are senior leaders sort of determining how to move forward wisely with this technology is probably at the very center of all those challenges. Uh, let me add another very important point here that may seem like it's coming from left field, but I'd argue is like right at the center of the kinds of stuff we need to worry about. So last year, I wrote a follow-on to that 2017, kind of looking at what's happened since that 2017 paper. And what took me a little bit by surprise is even though I knew I was going to give some attention to COVID-19, this is the thing that's going to seem to come from left field, it turned out to, to constitute easily a quarter of my update 2017. Why? It has nothing to do with the military per se, except to the extent that COVID-19 itself impacts the military. The issue here, and I want to pause and really give it emphasis because I think it is very important, vitally important. Um, Dave and I have done a, a number of stories. In fact, we anticipated uh, what the popular press is only now writing about going back to when COVID-19 began. We, we put together literally a, another section of our podcast devoted to COVID-19 and AI. We've since done away with that, but we did almost a year of those stories. Here's the bottom line. Um, and this is, um, we can reference the, the, uh, the various papers that provide the background to the assertion I'm about to make. In the entire time that the AI and machine learning community internationally has had to try to help to use their tools, machine learning, to combat COVID-19 from a variety of perspectives, from reading chest x-rays to uh, identifying whether an individual has COVID by coughing, um, by determining what the morbidity rate will be, blah, 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 right down the line. The bottom line is this, and it will sound like I'm, I'm uh, exaggerating. I am not. Not one single application had clinical merit. Think about that. In a year and a half of applying AI and machine learning, the best of the best from the machine learning community, it is a, the lesson is that it is an exceedingly difficult thing to step into a field that most of these researchers have no, no particular information or knowledge about. Of course, presumably they're working with, with researchers, medical researchers, and so on. It only strengthens the argument. It is a very difficult thing to go from what you know as a machine learning researcher with all the algorithms and all the tensor flows and cloud-based computing and to actually produce something which is clinically useful to human beings and to doctors. The lesson there is a much broader one. 
in a, in a sense, even though we didn't have the crucible of, of COVID-19 breathing down our necks, the military is now struggling. We're trying to move forward and tr transforming itself, right, from within, from without, trying to figure out how AI and machine learning truly is going to fit in and redefine what, what, what the military is and what it does. And the lesson from COVID-19, to the extent that we can draw some general lessons from that, is it may be a lot harder than people think. And there, there, again, there are many, many other examples, but the COVID-19 to me really stands out in the last year and a half. I was frankly flabbergasted by that. I would have expected initially and a priori, like when we started the first couple of stories in COVID-19 and AI more than a year ago, I expected to see a slew of successes and maybe even, wow, we've actually solved the piece of this puzzle. Not that easy. And there's a, a deep lesson there. Yeah, these are great points that you bring up. And we actually have discussed this on now a few podcasts. In particular, we have had a discussion with this with our half stack data science. We did a podcast swap with them as well. And, and we discussed this. One of you know our big concerns always is that AI has gone through previous winners. And a big reason oh, yeah. for that is it's over promise and under deliver on what you can do. Yep. And if you continue to do that, don't be shocked that another winter is coming. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, one of the points that we make is like, you know, the very first wave of, of AI interest back in the 50s, right? right? Early 60s, that when we first started doing natural language processing, very, you know, not nearly as, as powerfully as we have now, clearly not a lot of data. Um, you know, we showed some early successes. There actually was a success of some uh, voice recognition that, that was uh, early on. And of course, you may have seen that video, the Perceptron from the 1950s and 60s, the ability to, represent, to recognize male versus female. It's a very common video. And of mm -hmm. course, people instantly jumped too. Well, uh, if the natural language processing works so well, let's re let, you know, actually this was a military application. They're like, let's replace all those knobs and dials in the in the war fighting plane with basically just a voice control. Surely that's going to work. And as we all know, that was a colossal <laughs> failure, right? But we didn't. It's like we don't seem to learn that lesson. That you know, a little glimmer of like, well, we did it in this really you know specific use case, and it did show some some great return. We just instantly jump from like one to eleven, and we're surprised okay. that things don't work, right? Mm -hmm. there, Dave and I have talked about a, a number of surveys um, that <laughs> provide some uh, data to suggest that we may be on the cusp of at least a mini winter that uh, we've reached already that that uh, level of kind of diminishing returns it's it's hard to generalize obviously because just about every other week you see something that nobody's ever thought of before um but to the extent that you can look back a few years even at this point and uh, some serious people have looked at it mit open ai i think facebook looked at this uh, the same thing there's some evidence to suggest that again things are not as rosy as they seem another thing that that people not of my generation i'm, I'm approaching 61 as we speak in september um, I remember very well in the 90s, uh, there was a very uh, well-publicized internationally uh, Japanese program called the Fifth Generation Project, which mm -hmm. was the Japanese attempt to develop artificial general intelligence. They pumped quite a few million, if not over a billion dollars in that. I don't remember the exact amount. It was a colossal failure. Um, one could argue in hindsight, you know, we didn't have the hardware. We, we didn't have a lot of the techniques that they probably could have used, and they simply weren't around. But for whatever reason. Um, it's just a sober reminder that just because a lot of dollars are pumped into something, it doesn't mean a solution is there waiting for you. A lot of other things have to fall into place. 
Yeah, I, I use the um, self-driving vehicles as kind of my bellwether for where we are in, in this, right? Because, you know, certainly for a few years now, it's always been right, you know, right around the corner. Later this year, we're going to have fully autonomous vehicles. And of course, it has yet to happen. But, right, there was an important lesson out of that as well, which was watching the bifurcation of expectations from the consumer and actual capabilities of the product. And I, I think certain organizations that shall shall remain nameless have gotten that better under control but right a few years ago there were more in, there were more reports at least of for example drivers who thought their car could do more than it could actually do and and again I, we've heard fewer of those stories so perhaps the message is getting out there but for a while there's a big I had a big concern that hey you know the again the expectation of the consumer is completely mismatching from the actual capability let alone from the fact that we still do not have a fully autonomous driving vehicle. Yeah. Uh, I like to tell our podcast listeners, we've actually have had three now detailed podcasts on this. The first was actually a couple of years ago when they had that first fatality, mm-hmm. when the Uber vehicle ran over and we're like- The white truck? <laughs> uh, that t- That's actually Tesla's uh, inability to uh, see the, the big truck. The Uber was like the, uh, the, the, the self-driving car. And actually there was a person behind the wheel, but then this pedestrian was hit. They were walking right. a bike across the road. Mm-hmm. And what we were just trying to do is like, well, like, let's just look at this purely from a legal liability perspective. Who's to blame? Is it the vehicle? Is it Uber? Is it the? And actually, it turns out it was actually pretty hard to to untangle that mess because there's so many sort of cause, causal factors there. Was the human to blame who was behind the wheel? But they were told that they didn't have to be actively mm-hmm. involved. You know, uh, do they deserve poor guy deserve to blame? Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. But but um, it was, so we have a couple of podcasts on this. Um, you guys bring up so many great, great things here because we were talking about we we're talking about the, the winters uh, I mean, from a market perspective, because we do track markets. We have certainly hit some sort of at least a plateau peak. Mm. Um, the market we have seen just in terms of just vendor announcements and what's happening in the venture capital scene and IPO stuff, we're in a consolidation wave. It's actually pretty clear that companies, there's not a, as much new venture creation as there is consolidation and acquisition. That always points to uh, some sort of maturation in the market. Mm-hmm. I, I think from an AI perspective, we're, you know, we're going to just constantly come. This is going to come in waves. I think one of the great things that has come out of uh, a lot of this is sort of like the more, as I said, the more mundane practical applications of machine learning, which you know may or may not have necessarily gotten us closer to AI. Image recognition systems have clearly gotten better. Um, everything, you know, uh, OCR is not as bad as it used to be in image recognition. Also, lots of other things, predictive analytics applications, uh, sort of what our social media companies are doing in terms of uh, identifying correlations. All of that would not have been as doable uh, without uh, the power of many of the machine learning algorithms that we're using supervised, unsupervised, and reinforcement. Um, I just, and for our listeners, by the way, you know, we talk about these challenges. A lot of the challenges, Andrew Ng, uh, just a few months ago, for those people who are listening to this podcast in August of 2021, if you're listening to this in 2022, then you can see how quaint we are talking about this stuff. <laughs> but uh, before the singularity occurred, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'd be like, oh, look at those guys. And they had no idea what they're talking about. If you listen to our podcast, by the way, from 2019, you're like, oh, you guys have no idea what's about to happen. You got a <laughs> pandemic around the corner. You guys are so, so, so cheeky. But um, one of the things that we like to focus there, Andrew recently talked about all these AI project failures that are happening. And a lot of it has to do with things like basic things like data quality and data quantity. 
And those tend to be the hangups. Um, if, so for those who are looking to, to put some of the practical uses of AI and maybe temper some of their enthusiasm a little bit, it turns out there actually is a fairly well-established methodology that's now becoming a best practice. If you're, not, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the old CRISP-DM that's been around for well over two decades, it's been uh, enhanced, something called CPMAI. And uh, we've been talking about this in a lot of our, of our podcasts. It's becoming an emerging methodology for basically running big data analytics projects of which AI is a form, uh, where the emphasis is on basically making your data ready to be uh, analyzed and also getting your own expectations honestly in check. Uh, mm-hmm. Because the more you actually get your expectations in check, actually it turns out the more successful your projects would be. You're like, oh, I want to recognize everything in the universe. I want to have every single conversation. Well, we say, well, just think about what kind of training data you're going to need to make that work and how clean it is, which is not, and how much work you're going to have to put into to label and annotate it. That's just like a, you're, 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 you're trying to boil the ocean, right? If you just make your project just a little bit more manageable, take a smaller bite, you know, be more iterative, not only is the project easier to, to accomplish, but your likelihood of success will go way up. And yeah, maybe your, your dreams are not as ambitious, hmm. but your likelihood of success is. So just something to go ahead, yeah. If I can make one point there, though, I'd kind of throw in a, a little bit of a monkey wrench and a caveat. Um, we're moving more and more, uh, speaking of data, to generating more and more simulated and model data because mm. of the dearth of the real world data that we need. And not even speaking about the difficulties, even if you had it. And overlapping with the issue we just talked about, the self-driving cars, the best way to describe that, and Dave and I, again, have done multiple podcasts from multiple points of view of what I like to call the fat tail problem. The distributions in nature are very complex. We simplify things in the math and statistics books and physics books. You know, we, we write Gaussians down for something that kind of very nicely and generously falls almost to zero so that we can actually know or think we know what we're talking about. The real, real world is much messier. The fat tails mean that whatever distributions you have that you have to train your systems with, there will always be unanticipatable events that make up a finite non-zero fraction of the space you need to train on because they in fact harbor some of the information you need even to deal with the non-fat parts. That's why places like uh, <laughs> a Tesla and Uber and others, they need these extraordinary peta, peta, you know, peta of petabytes of data and the move is to generate more and more. There is a difficulty with that. Um, and I, I think I mentioned the term, the unanticipatable possible. That is a term that Stu Kaufman, a complex ecologist uses. Nature is rich and does what it does through evolutionary processes because this is the best way nature has found on a meta level to deal with these fat tail problems. Everything is changing. The environment is changing. My understanding of the environment is changing. Things pop up that I've lived for 80 years and I've only seen for the first time. Um, And that's how nature deals with it. We still have great issues with that. And when, and I'm going to sum up in a second, when, when I hear and I read a lot about these new efforts of using simulated data, most of it is okay insofar as it's used to fill in the blanks, as it were, even though inevitably biases are going to creep in and there's a whole host of related issues that we don't have time to get into. That's fine as it stands. But the issue always remains of how rich do you need the data set really to be in order for you to leverage that properly to solve whatever problems you have. And that's where it becomes difficult. An analogy I could use is, suppose I want to train my set on, um, I'm looking through Zoom, let's say, at at the background of of Dave's apartment. 
And I can generate all the data in the world, right, of what the color the walls are, you know, what, what type of pattern the, the door has. Nothing there is going to prepare me for what happens if the zoom camera moves five inches to the left or right. There could be something there that's simply not in my data set. And it is not simply a matter, and I'll stop here, of using what I have, filling in the blanks, generating another petabyte worth of data, I simply won't know. That's a fundamental problem, and it's an irreducible one. Right. And and to loop back to the earlier discussion on the challenges that we're seeing in the Department of Defense and I think the government in general, you know, Ron, what you were mentioning about the, the data being core to making this stuff work. Um, you get the typical response from people, which is like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got that data. It's fine. And of course, they're not data scientists. They don't actually know what the data looks like. And the person, you know, the action officer or the whomever who actually owns that Excel spreadsheet probably is probably quaking in their seat thinking like, oh, no, please don't try to use this, you know, Swiss cheese of a data set for whatever you're trying to do. And time and time again, right, everyone discovers like, oh, yeah, our data is not actually as good as we think, quote unquote. And, and even just the idea that we can't even institute the processes to make it better, or even worse, I think the government often finds out that it can't share the information or some other atrocious thing because of some contract that they leased with some um, company makes it a proprietary data set, so they can't provide it to someone else. And so those light bulbs are starting to come on I, you know, in, in a good way where the government is trying to find ways to make data more accessible to, to help fix things. But I would say we're, we're very much in the preschool, uh, pre-kindergarten sort of phase of that, of that effort. Um, yeah. Data is so important on many levels, right? Data is just important to gain insights in general, organizations, governments, you know, lots of people can gain insights. And then in addition to that, machine learning needs to learn off data because if it learns, you know, it, it needs to learn off something, right? And we say at Cognolytica, about 80% of AI projects are data cleansing, data preparation, you know, data mm -hmm. uh, projects. So you need to make sure that you're understanding what data you have. You have data governance in place. You have, you know, you're understanding that you need to do data preparation. You need to manipulate your data. And unfortunately, we've seen way too many organizations just run these projects ad hoc. And so we always, uh, you know, are promoting best practices methodologies because we're saying you can't run these projects. First off, you can't run them like you run application development projects, because if you do that, you'll very quickly realize that that is not going to work. So you have to have data methodologies in place. So at Cognolytica, we always advocate for best practices methodologies, and in particular, the Cognitive Project Management for AI, CPMAI methodology. It's a best practices approach for implementing AI and machine learning projects. And we have seen, you know, dozens of projects uh, go through use the CPMAI methodology and be able to succeed because they're saying, okay, we're taking, because methodology is not rocket science. It's just following a set of steps in a predictable and repeatable order so that you make sure that you're doing things correctly. So if listeners would like to learn more, we encourage you to go to courses.cognolytica.com. You can check out the CPMAI methodology as well as sign up for our methodology training if you're interested. But it's always important to have that in place. And that's one thing that maybe shouldn't, but does always surprise us when we find that, you know, large governments and large agencies, large companies, Fortune 1000, Fortune 10 companies are not using 
a methodology, not any data centric or AI <laughs> methodology. And we always are so surprised by that. Mm-hmm. So switching it to you guys, what's one thing that you've been surprised about? And this, this is very general, so it doesn't have to be just about methodology, but what's one thing that surprised you in regards to AI and your coverage of AI with research and news and trends? Well, I'll, I'll say one thing that I have to qualify a little bit. Um, one of the things that took me by surprise was the transformer methods for natural language processing, the GPT-2 and 3. And why do I say surprise? I am as much surprised as to how much it gets right as by how much it gets wrong. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, one would like to think that in the context of language, right, kind of the premier human-centric way of uh, engaging the world and engaging others with our perceptions and understandings of, of information in the world, you would think it's a pretty complicated thing. And it is, and it remains that. And GPT-3, once it came around, I'm assuming your audience and our audience obviously knows that, so I'm not going to go into that. Um, from the hype-centric engines that you see, um, even from some researchers, oh, it's extraordinary. Um, recently, OpenAI, and we, Dave and I talked about it last week, there's another version coming out. Even programmers are getting into the game where GPT-3-like um, systems are now allowing them to program without having any program skills. But look, getting back to the natural language and, and to answer your question. So we've all seen lots of little examples of what at first appeared to be remarkably human-like, not always, right? Statistically, you're going to have some outliers, clearly, but I'm looking at those entries or, or the, the the passages of text that are created by GPT-3 that just make you stop and the jaw drops initially. And that's kind of the first surprise. For something as complicated as what humans do, if you think about what transformers do, it's basically a statistical fit to you give it a string of letters and based on, yes, billions and billions of bits of text and billions of parameters that are fitting this, all of machine learning is in some sense is obviously oversimplified, but it's a massive multidimensional space fit to data. That's all it is. The extent to which GPT-3-like systems are able to capture enough of what the human brain does in its capacity for language to at least fool a lot of the people some of the time into believing that short snippets were generated by a human, that took me by surprise. But the part that also took me by surprise, um, although it's or, or it's part of that surprise, is if you think about what GPT-3 does, and this is the part that, that I am now more happy to see, once you read beyond a few sentences, the kind of the, the tapestry, if you will, of, of the cognition that lies behind the human way of organizing thoughts, it dissipates fairly rapidly. And so it GPT-3-like systems at once demonstrate the power of AI for the reasons I gave in short snippets. Wow. I mean, this is way beyond the ELISA of 1970, but how rapidly it falls off, which means that we're missing something very deep about how the human brain works. It's not surprising. This is not what we do. We don't look at a sentence and, and ask ourselves, oh, what's the ninth word in, in a, after a string of eight? Thank God that's not what we do and not what GPT-3 does. So the first surprise was how well it was able to capture it despite doing something as simple as that. But then what it portends and what it still needs, we need breakthroughs. And GPT-3 is not, may seem like it is, but it's not. The human brain brain does something much richer. I don't know what it is. Nobody knows right now. But that's one of the things. 
I will say compared to Andy, I am a, a much a neophyte in this area. So my my surprise is much more simple, I think. And I'll, I'll key off of Melanie Mitchell, since we mentioned her previously, uh, a comment that she makes frequently, which is easy things are hard. And it's not just that that quote, but it's it's the underpinning reason for that. The things that we take for granted as humans to be able to look at an image, for example, imagine a photo of a woman in a uniform who is crouched down, hugging a child and has some balloons with her, right? Our brains immediately, they just can't help it, immediately craft a story behind that, that we understand what that image is about. And what we, where we are today with image recognition is photo contains woman, uh, you know, balloons, child, those sorts of things. And, and Kathleen, I think you mentioned earlier, right? That that reasoning is is completely absent. And and there may be some tiny examples where we're encroaching into that area. But again, that that idea that the easy things are hard for computers, and understanding again why that why that is, and it it helps to sort of give you the perspective on really the the challenge that we're faced with with trying to make sense of all this stuff. And initially, to me, it, it again, right, in retrospect, probably, duh, but um, I think that was probably one of the initial surprising things for me and getting some some more detailed and, and being able to understand that a little bit better. There may be an interesting irony in this and, and perhaps uh, a suggestion as to where some of the field may be moving. We still exist very much in the rigorously bottom-up approach. And I'm as guilty as any other because I've spent decades working in agent-based models, which are exemplars of that to the, to the nth degree. And what we're seeing through things like GPT-3 and what Dave is talking about is, and think about how we understand sentences. We don't understand sentences by individual words. We understand sentences by holistically understanding the role the sentence plays in the context of what we're reading and in the broader context of who we are and the information we bring to what we chose to read. Um, the common sense element. And that's a holistic element. That's something that people are struggling with and to be sure people are researching, but it right now is not part of the mainstream of machine learning. Everything is reduced down to individual neurons or analogs of neurons and synapses and so on. And perhaps where the next frontier will be, and again, I, I, I can only suggest it, I don't have a simple solution for this, but to have some system which in some sense approaches a problem that currently is driven from the bottom up and it kind of an answer percolates from the substratum of these basic little algorithms and neurons and mathematical weights, it actually starts in the reverse with a much higher symbolic, dare I say, understanding of a holistic world within which agents or an agent is situated interacting with other agents. And from that, drilling down to what the problem at hand is. So that's kind of in a nutshell, that's, that's one of my visions. And again, it's not that people aren't researching the thing, but it certainly is not the mainstream. We still see, you know, you, you open up a technical paper and you're going to have reams and reams of weights being adjusted in certain ways and more and more algorithms of feeding back these weights into others. Far less attention is given to the holistic understanding of a problem from which the entire set of problems that the machine learning algorithm is itself trying to, to kind of embed itself and solve something in. Is situated in. I'll, I'll stop there. So, Andy, are, are you saying that um, reward is not enough? Maybe <laughs> um, I'll go out on a limb and say reward is an absolutely vital part of what will eventually be an AGI, <laughs> but it is by no means the yeah. only way there. 
and we need more. Well, I, I have to say, and I know we're kind of reaching near the, uh, we're kind of getting getting close to the length of this podcast here. And I think this is really, really pretty awesome. I, I A couple of things. One, definitely, it still feels like we're brute forcing our way to AI. It's I'm like, look at the billions of parameters and the exabytes of data we have. And we're able to basically create some programming content when you say, draw me a red button that could do that. And I'm like, it works. It's like the best, sometimes we call it like the, the best magic trick, you know, it's sort of like, if you know how it worked, you wouldn't be as impressed. But, um, you know, that's kind of how it feels. We're so brute forcing. I have to say kind of moving and before you get wrap up the last question, because Kathleen always got the, the last question. It's a great one. The one thing that surprises me is how great other po- podcast hosts are. I know it's kind of weird meta, but like, we're not just talking. We're not just like, you know, uh, some people, th- I don't know what people might think of us. Like, I don't know if people think we're just like, oh, we're just kind of information Sherpas or something. No, I have to say <laughs> we are continuously impressed by the knowledge and the depth and the expertise of folks who are running these AI podcasts. And I don't know. I mean, I think people should spend more time, you know, talking to us. So <laughs> that's just, just a, my last little bit there. It's great to have a, a passion on this topic and just a deep thirst for knowledge on it, right? It's a, it's a, it's a massive ocean and it's a lot of fun to play in. Exactly. Yeah, um, we totally agree. Yeah, I mean, the podcasters, uh, and I'll, I'll include Dave and myself in that group, and certainly you guys, we are at that broader cusp. We talked about the cusp within CNA, the military, and the researchers, but podcasters in general that are up on the latest literature, we provide a service. Um, Dave and I go through an enormous amount of literature, as, as you might, on a weekly basis, right? It's hard to choose out of the 50 stories that appeared last week, what are the you know nine or 10 that we're going to be talking about. But once we we choose them from the listener point of view, I hope this is what our listeners get, and, and I, I suspect that you're of like mind. They're not get, they don't have the luxury of doing what we do, right? To sit around and, and read these papers and sift through these stories. We're providing a realistic view with some technical acumen sitting behind it um, to allow people to understand a little bit of something which otherwise might be cloaked behind the usual hype engine kind of clickbaity uh, newspaper articles. So I think, yeah, all podcasters that do what, what we do, um, they're providing a very vital service. Yes. And that is very interesting. You bring that up because on another podcast swap, the Let's Talk AI podcast, they actually did bring that up because they cover a lot of, you know, more recent trends um, and pop culture news more than, you know, military specific. And they said, yes, there's a lot of clickbait titles when it comes to AI. So now, This was an incredible podcast. We have enjoyed having you so much and we will, we're lucky to be guests on your podcast. So I do encourage our listeners to check that out as well. We are doing this swap, but we always ask this question of our guests and as the last question, and I love all of the responses that we get because they are so varied and you can take this however you'd like. Some people have very practical answers. Some people have more philosophical answers. So as a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations, governments, and beyond? Um, I'll, I'll try to keep this short and, and non-technical. Um, I think whatever it will be, it will take all of us by surprise. Um, five, six years, 10 years from now, um, Ron, you mentioned uh, kind of off the cuff a couple of minutes ago in a different context, you know, just looking back over the stories that the, our respective podcasts have done in a year. Uh, take that with two or three orders of magnitude. This is just my personal view. 10 years from now, there will have been some events which we truly could not anticipate right now. This is how major leaps occur. 
part of my answer is driven by the fact that I don't believe that the current crop landscape of machine learning algorithms, as powerful as it may be, and as the incredible successes it's shown, is what we need to actually construct artificial general intelligence. We're missing key ingredients. Symbolic processing is one. Analogies is another. Um, but there are others that I cannot anticipate, and I don't believe anyone else can. So without giving a direct answer, but I'm very passionate in my um, belief in what I'm asserting here, that five to 10 years from now, in hindsight, there will have been something that we can at present anticipate, which will radically alter what all the prognosticators and futurists and even researchers are dreaming about right now. And, and that's what I believe. There you go. I guess I'll go with a, a similar sort of philosophical take, which is um, I've enjoyed being able to read just a crazy amount of books. And again, dipping in maybe into the sci-fi realm still, but I think of books like Max Tegmark's Life 3.0, being able to talk about what, where do we want to take humanity? What is our future as a species is simultaneously terrifying and exciting. And to be able to see those discussions happening in, in a very practical way to say like, no, we need to start talking about this now so that we head off in the right direction. So we avoid the this, this scenarios and end states that we, we can all agree don't sound very good. Um, to, to be in that zone where those types of discussions can be meaningful and impactful in the way we go, again, as a future of a species is just terribly exciting. And I, I'm just, I, I, I watch with great anticipation as, as all that stuff unfolds. All right. Well, thank you. As I said, I always love to hear how people answer that question. So thank you for your insightful answers for that. And this podcast, you know, like I said, it really has been incredible. So listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. And again, I would like to thank both uh, Dave and Andy as well. So thank you for joining. We're really looking forward to your podcast as well. And we're definitely going to cross promote that. So listeners, check out AI with AI podcast. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you know, we also have a few different AI communities. I know that many of our listeners have been enjoying and attending them. We have our data for AI community that is focused on all things data. You can go to dataaiconf.com to register. We have monthly presenters from um, you know, various different organizations and companies sharing how they're using data and how they're, you know, applying artificial intelligence. And then we also have our AI and government community as well, which has been going strong for many years now. It used to be in person and now it is become virtual like everything else. So you can go to AIingovernment.com to check that out. It's very relevant. We have people from state and local government to federal government, also the defense and the IC community as well, and then international. So it brings a really broad flavor to how AI is being adopted across the entire government. So definitely check that out, dataaiconf.com or aiingovernment.com. Yep. And uh, just as a preview, we actually are going to have someone from the NSCAI come join us for a future podcast. So if you're listening to us in the future, it'll be a pod, past podcast, but there'll be another podcast here. And uh, we also have the uh, some folks from Scotland and a bunch of other folks. So, so stay tuned to this podcast. But I just want to give a final thank you to our fabulous guests from AI with AI podcast, Andy Lachinsky and David Broyles. You guys were fantastic. Thank you for thanks. having us. Yeah, thanks so much.
Yeah, thanks so much. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. I know that we talked about a lot of different things. And we will also link to the AI with AI podcast, both their main podcast landing page and the podcast that Ron and I were also interviewed on. So we definitely encourage you to check out their podcast if you are not already listening. So thanks for listening and we'll catch you at the next episode. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group. And make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica, all rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.